Thanks so much, Bob. What a, yeah, such a joy to be here. Uh, I love this conference. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm... A, it's, sometimes it's just better to ask forgiveness than permission. But my wife told me last night she just started crying because this could be our last worship God. We don't know. And that affected her so much she just started to cry. We love being here. It's encouraging. I've got three of my five kids here with me and uh, always an encouragement. My daughter said to me yesterday in the car talking about how much uh, Mike Reeves' sermon had affected us. She said, boy, I'm glad I don't have to preach after Mike Reeves. <laughs> so glad I brought them along for the encouragement. And uh, I would never, ever tell you that it's my wife's birthday today because that would embarrass her. And, uh, um, but I am so grateful for her. Where are you guys? Oh, there they are. And uh, glad you were born. Glad we got hitched and glad you were reborn. Thanks, Bob, for this privilege. Thanks for sticking around. Um, is there still room <laughs> for more? I, I, I prayed this morning that, that uh, God would just stuff this truth into the corners of our mind and our heart, because that's probably all that's left after this uh, amazing conference. So will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 19. We're going to focus in on verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Uh, we've had glimpses of glory this week, haven't we? Jesus really is glorious. He's the just and merciful servant of God. He's true God of true God. He's our substitute. He's our risen king. He's our compassionate brother. He's our intercessor. His glory is manifold. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who um, I once thought was an American Puritan <laughs> pastor and theologian, but Mike Reeves told me different, and I'm just going to go with Mike Reeves. He, he, re, he referred to this as, th this is what Jonathan Edwards would, would name this conference, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Christ Jesus. We, we just say the glorious Christ, and that's enough. Because we, we know, I mean, Jesus is gloriously complex. I mean, to paraphrase Edwards, he's lion-like in his glory, and he's lamb-like in his humility, right? He, he's transcendent, and yet he condescends. He's majestic, and he's meek. He's powerful, and he's submissive. He's just, and he's merciful. He's the creator, and he's crucified. And the one with all authority in heaven and on earth says to us again today, come to me and find rest. I mean, we, we, we were made to stand in awe of such diverse excellencies. That is to say, we were made to worship our Christ, who is the Son of God, 
He's the wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the bright morning star. He's our rock. He's the pearl. He's the man of war. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the lily and the rose. He's the root out of dry ground. He's the tree of life. He's the fountain of living water. He's the bread of life, and he's the new wine. And he is... Our topic for this last session, our returning bridegroom. So, let's stand. Knowing that when he returns, uh, we will behold glories heretofore unseen. And when we see those glories, we will be transformed utterly. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 22, I'll read and I'll pray and then we'll dive in. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we pause now between the, the reading and the preaching of your word because we're needy. And so we, we position ourselves now as, as needy beggars. We need you. This is our corporate cry now for, for help. There are so many needs in this room, like Devin said, so many needs. Some, some are here and they just need the pain to stop, to just go away. For, for others, they need the heartache to heal need the bills to get paid, 
Need the marriage to be good again. Need that prodigal son or daughter to come home. Need the, the past to stop haunting. Need this session to end and grace to prepare for Sunday. We have so many needs, but we, we confess now together that we need nothing more than we need to see and savor Jesus Christ by your spirit through your word. So will you help me now? Help me to preach uh, powerfully, passionately, persuasively, and uh, with humility. Help us all. We all, we all need you to open our eyes to see, and we need you to open our ears to hear and open our hearts to receive, Lord. And Spirit, come and do what you love to do and magnify Christ among us. Let truth hold sway, we pray, for our everlasting, ever-increasing joy and for your eternal honor and glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we, we just read from the book, and uh, now I want to read to you from a book. It's, it's a good book. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I, I, I cannot read uh, Revelation 19 and not think of a particular scene in The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien, middle book in, in The Lord of the Rings. And, and I can't read this scene in The Two Towers without thinking about Revelation 19. The scene is the Battle of Helm's Deep. So if you've never read the books but you've seen the movie, you, you'll have some images in your head. The people of Rohan have retreated to the stronghold of Helm's Deep and the, the orc army, the Urukai of the evil traitor wizard Saruman are attacking and they're winning. And Tolkien writes this. Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Urukai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of dawn, they jeered. We are the Urukai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? None knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. But even as the gates fell and the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur arose behind them like a wind in the distance, and it grew to a clamor of many voices crying strange news in the dawn. And then, sudden and terrible, from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of the helm rang out. All that heard the sound trembled. Many of the orcs cast themselves on their faces and covered their ears with their claws, but on the walls men looked up, listening with wonder, for the echoes did not die. There suddenly, upon a ridge, appeared a rider, clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills, the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. Their swords were in their hands. Behold the white rider, cried Aragorn. Gandalf is come again. 
The orcs roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again the horn sounded in the tower. Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company. Down leaped Shadowfax, Gandalf's white steed, like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell on their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear. Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees. And from that shadow, none ever came again. The Lord of the Rings is a great story. Tolkien is a, a great storyteller, but God is the greatest storyteller. Right? He's the author of authors, right? He, he, he gave us this book, this story of all stories, the stories from which all other stories like the Lord of the Rings flow. All stories flow from it and, and they flow back to it. All stories find their resolution in, in the story. Here's how Tolkien himself said it. This story, the gospel story, is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of man and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. Now, Lord of the Rings is just a story, but in it is an echo of the story. So in terms of Lord of the Rings mythology, we exist now in the Battle of Helm's Deep. Right? That's life for, for, for us. We elect exiles. It's, it's battle. It's, it's war. But Gandalf is coming at dawn. Now, in terms of the real story, the true story, we live in the church age, the last days where we fight the fight of faith, looking forward to the dawn, to our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, right? The coming of the white rider. When we, when we read through the Bible and we get to chapter 19 of, of Revelation, and read from there uh, to the end of the book of Revelation, we realize that what we have in this book is the perfect story. It, it, it's the perfect story with the perfect ending, because the ending is really just a beginning. I mean, this whole story is kill the dragon, get the girl, and live happily ever after, <laughs> right? That's the whole story. Destroy the dragon, get the bride, live happily ever after. And, and we don't have to worry and, and wonder, how is this going to turn out? How is this life going to turn out? Where is this all heading? I mean, some of you are here at this conference and, and you're wondering, is it, is it ever going to be okay? We endure the battle. We fight the fight of faith. We wait and we worship because we know Jesus is coming. 
to make all things right. So, yes, it will be infinitely better than okay. And a description of the bridegroom's return is what we have in our verses today. Now, you know th this is not an obscure teaching in the Bible. I mean, we have a remarkable description of Christ's second coming in Revelation 19, but it's mentioned, his coming back is mentioned over 300 times in the scriptures. He's coming, a and God intends for us to remember that. Every single day, he intends for us to remember that. There's this day and there's that day, like Martin Luther said. Two days on his calendar, this day and that day, the day of Christ's appearing. And that, that's meant to affect us. I mean, that's meant to fill us with longing and expectation. It's meant to change the way we live. May it do that. So we're going to look at, at the description of Christ's coming here. These verses break down nicely. So I'm just going to put some headings over these verses to help us make our way through. So we're going to look at uh, the Savior, verses 11 through 16, the Supper, verses 17 through 18, and the Sword, verses 19 through 21. And, and those, those headings are actually uh, answers to three questions. And the questions are, who's coming? The Savior. Why is he coming? The Supper. And what will happen when he comes? The Sword. So we'll walk through the verses, and then, then we'll end with some takeaways. Why is this description here? What effect should this have on us? I mean, the, the, like I said, these word pictures are, are meant to stir us, to change us. So we'll end by talking about that. But first, who's coming? Verses 11 through 16. There's no, no suspenseful buildup. We know who's coming. We know who's being described in these verses. If you were reading through the book of Revelation, you would recognize the, this description because it's how very similar to how Jesus is described when he first appears to John back in chapter 1. And, and, and these, these images in Revelation 1 and 19, other places, they paint one of the most powerful pictures of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. This is, this is, this is theology in pictures, right? Theology with pictures, word pictures. And, and this, this apocalypse, these images are, are just meant to affect us. And, and we should be affected by the very first phrase. It is stirring. I mean, sometimes we just, we fly over phrases like this and we need to read the Bible slowly. I mean, think about it. Then I saw heaven opened. Whew. I saw heaven opened. Now, back in chapter 4 of Revelation, you remember, a door opens into heaven. You remember that? And it opens so that the Apostle John could enter the throne room. And he does, and he describes what he sees there. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we've got two of the mountain peaks of Scripture. But here, in chapter 19, all of heaven is opened. Right? No more doors, no more walls, no more separation of dimensions. I mean, imagine what will it be like when he rends the heavens and comes down. 
heaven opened, and, and not so someone can go in, like back in Revelation chapter 4, but so someone can come forth. I originally typed out, come out, but that doesn't quite cut it. You have to say, come forth when the heavens are rendered. I mean, it's no wonder John says, behold, right? give your attention to this someone who is coming forth. And when we do, we see that he's on a white horse. And Gandalf Shadowfax has nothing on this steed. Emperors rode white horses uh, in victory parades. Battle won, parade, they're on a white horse. Jesus is declaring his victory on that white horse before the battle. I mean, all he does is show up, and it's utter victory. You know why? Because he already won when he died on the cross and rose again. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. This, that is the record of the dead of our sins that stood against us, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ on the cross. Jesus rode a donkey to the cross. You remember? The ride into Jerusalem and, and, and to death. We see his humility in that. We see his servanthood. We see his suffering. We see his identifying with us. But when he consummates the triumph of the cross by coming again, he will be on a white steed as the conqueror, as the captain, as the sovereign one fighting for us. He's called Middle of verse 11, faithful and true. He's faithful to his people, and he's faithful to keep his promises. I mean, we, we can surely trust the God whose very name and nature is faithful. And he's true. He's true to his word to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. He's intolerant of all falsehood. He will expose everything that's counterfeit. I mean, you put those together, faithful and true, and what that means is he will never deceive us. He will never fail us. He will never forget us. And he will fulfill his promises to us. And he has eyes like fire, verse 12. We saw these flaming eyes back in, in chapter 1 when Jesus first appeared to John in his heavenly glory. His, his gaze is piercing. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees perfectly and exhaustively into the lives and into the hearts of all people. And middle of verse 12, he has many diadems on his head. Too many to count. Right? You remember the dragon in Revelation, he had some crowns. He had seven of them. The beast had ten. That means their rule and reign is limited. It will pass away. But King Jesus wears all the crowns now and forever in majesty and power. And he's the word of God. Into verse 13. Jesus is the one who through his words... And through his deeds manifests or reveals the character of God to us. 
He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is God's revelation to us incarnate, right, in the flesh. This book, this, this Bible is God's revelation to us in writing, and, and we can't separate the two now, right? The, the living word, the, the word made flesh, Jesus, stands forth from this written word, the Bible. Right, we know Jesus by what's written here. And to know Jesus is to know the Father. But one day, no more reading, revealing words. We will behold the word of God himself. He is the end of verse 16, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just superlatives to, to make the point that he is the kingliest of all kings, he is the lordliest of all lords. To him belongs all authority and power and all dominion. Now, notice who else is in the Calvary with the white rider. Look at verse 14. Jesus comes with the armies of heaven. And they're wearing fine linen, white and pure. That, that tells us who they are. Because back in verse 8 of chapter 19, which we're actually going to read before we're done, that's how the bride, the church, is described. So all the saints who've gone before come back with Jesus. And that's not all. It's armies, plural, right? In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus told us while he was here on earth, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When, when heaven opens so that the white rider can come again, he empties heaven of all its angels and all its saints and brings them with him. Now, what about the Christians who haven't died? And who are still on earth when Jesus comes again. Well, they need a rapture to answer that question, right? You, you, know, you know about the rapture. You might have had debates about when the rapture happens. Even though rapture is not a biblical term, uh, there is a rapture of the church in the Bible. And I mean rapture as in being carried away to another place. It's not in the book of Revelation, but it's in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and it happens when Christ comes back. Then we who are alive, who are left when Christ comes again, will be caught up together with them, plural, right? The saints who have gone before and all God's angels in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's your rapture. Definitely post-tribulation because it's post-church <laughs> I mean, th think, think of it. I mean, every, every Christian, just let this land. Every Christian in this room will one day ride to victory with Jesus. Amen. Jesus doesn't triumph alone. He triumphs with his people. We, we, we'll ride, I mean, did you notice? We'll ride on our own white horse. Our own white horse of triumph in the victory charge led by our Lord and Savior, our white rider on that great day. Now, that puts our mundane day-to-day -day existence into perspective, doesn't it? 
Lord, let that land on us. That's our future. I mean, the, the, the story of stories has a resolution. Right now, there's rumors of war. There's natural disasters. There's cancer consuming our loved ones. There's corruption and calamity. There's rampant immorality and injustice everywhere we turn. But God's story is the story. And it's the perfect story. So the dragon will be defeated, the bride will be rescued, and there will be a happily ever after. And, 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 and listen, this, this struck me. The Jesus here in these verses is re revealed fully as he always is, as he always has been, as he is now. He doesn't come this, become this when he comes again. This is who he is now. And he's with you, Christian, in that mundane, day-to-day -day existence. This is the Jesus. In fact, if you were in Mike Reeves' uh, session, last session, he, you're in him. This is the Jesus you're in. I mean, that thought will change us. Next question. Why is he coming? Look at the end of verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. That, that, that's the theme now in, in these verses. There's, there's this military imagery. He, he comes to, to judge and make war. And it's in righteousness. Right? He, he is the only one, Jesus is the only one whose judgment is just. Right? That is legally perfect. He's the only one whose judgment is true, morally perfect. His judgment is altogether righteous. There is, I don't have to tell you this, but I will anyway. There is no perfectly true and just judicial system on this planet. And there never will be until Jesus comes again. <laughs> and his judgments are just and true. He will judge perfectly all those who corrupt and kill. Now, look at verse 13 for this battle imagery. Jesus is wearing a robe dipped in blood. What blood? Whose blood? Well, for that answer, we have to look back into the Old Testament. So much of the imagery in Revelation comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 63 is the inspiration for this image. In verse 1, God comes splendid in appearance, marching in strength, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Sounds a lot like our text. And then verses 2 and 3. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, God answers. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now, not, not exactly a Sunday school image. Why is Jesus' robe red, Johnny? Well, because, end of verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And there's blood because he slays 
his enemies with his sword. Beginning verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Right? That's a symbol of the accusatory word of God. God will tell us all who we are and will show us all who Christ is. And those who have rebelled against him will be pierced by the reality. Now, the horrific imagery continues, verses 17 and 18. Again, like the white horse, we see the outcome before the actual battle. An angel summons birds to the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the fallen. That happens before there's any battle. That's how certain the outcome is. And again, it's an image drawn from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 39. Now, you know I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, these are the symbols that God uses. And they are graphic and they're jarring. I mean, divine retribution can make us uncomfortable, can it? And here's one of the reasons I think it does. I think it makes us so uncomfortable because we are so comfortable. I mean, we, we are, for the most part, unharassed and unbothered by enemies. So we don't, we don't feel that longing for the gospel to be vindicated. We, we don't live under the threat of imprisonment for our faith. I, I assume that no one came to this conference worrying about a bomb going off during a session. I venture to say that few, if any of us, have had our property plundered, watched our wife get raped or our children murdered in front of our eyes, all because of the testimony of Jesus. But it has happened. It is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, to those with whom we will ride one day to victory. All of them who have those spots of glory. I think they probably understand better than we do that this is what has to happen in order to make all things new. It has to happen. Evil has to be destroyed because God's justice and, and, and also for the sake of the purity of the new world. I read Isaiah 63, 2 and 3. Here's verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. Right? It's God speaking. And my year of redemption had come. See the parallelism? The day of God's vengeance is the year of his redemption. Full and final redemption for God's friends requires vengeance on God's enemies. And, and, and so we, we've already answered our, our last question, what will happen at his coming? I answer the sword, by which I mean the war, verses 19 through 21. I mean, we, we, we read about all the... There's momentum, there's buildup, there's a gathering of forces in verse 19. And then what happens in verse 20? Well, not much of a battle. Right? There, there is no battle in this war because who can fight against the white rider and his armies? And the answer is no one. Look, look what happens in verse 20. The beast and the false prophet are captured. That word could be translated seized. 
They're taken hold of by force and they're cast into the lake of fire. It's immediate, it's complete, it's utter defeat in the blink of an eye. Christ comes and he is instantly victorious. The, the Apostle Paul says it like this, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Just his breath. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He just shows up. And it happens. And so Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lion who rose, the great breaker of the seals, brings to conclusion the history that he's reigned over from the beginning. Right? The, the, the end of the story of stories, which is really the beginning of the story. So there's the description of the glorious return of Jesus. Now, what are the takeaways? Why, why is this here? Why was the Apostle John commanded to pass along this description of Christ's return? What, what effect should it have on us? And as I studied these verses, I just asked myself those questions, jotted down answers. I'm just going to share a couple of them with you as they came to me. We could say a lot more, but this is what I believe the Lord has for us today. First, we must be content to let Jesus be Jesus. By which I mean we must have a full biblical picture of Jesus. And we know him, like I said earlier, by what's revealed here. All of it. Right? We, we can't pick and choose uh, the characteristics of our Jesus. Right? We can't simply uh, create him in our own image. And that is a very real temptation. I mean, if all we have is Jesus on the donkey, right, all love and acceptance, then we don't have the glory of his wrath and the glory of his justice. We have no glorious day of vengeance and so no glorious year of redemption, no renewal. We just have a soft, namby-pamby Jesus. And if all we have is Jesus on the white horse, all truth and judgment, then we don't see the glory of his humility and the glory of his compassion and the glory of his understanding and understanding us and our suffering. And we certainly can't have the Republican Jesus draped in an American flag, waging war on Muslims and immigrants and government regulations. We can't have the democratic Jesus all about social justice and no gospel truth. We certainly can't have Elton John's Jesus. There's probably a, a more recent relevant quote out there, but I still remember this one several years later. Maybe it's more relevant now because that movie Rocket Man is in theaters. But he said this. He said that for him, Jesus is a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. Now, if we're not careful, we can fabricate a Jesus who condemns the sins we hate and ignores the ones we commit. But Jesus condemns all sin, and he's willing to forgive all sin. 
And we have to let the Jesus we see here challenge us. We have to let him convict us. He will not be shaped into our image, but he will shape us into his image. Jesus is gloriously meek and mild, and he is gloriously severe and holy and just and strong. That's the glorious Christ who's worthy of our worship. Our worship is at stake in whether or not we let Jesus be Jesus, the one who's revealed here in this book. Now, there's another way we need to let Jesus be Jesus. I skipped a description of him when we were walking through the text. It's the end of verse 12. Here it is again. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And yet God reveals his names to us all all throughout Scripture. I mean, even here in chapter 19, we're told names of Jesus, right? He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And every time that God tells us his name, he's revealing something about his character, about who he is. And he's told us a lot. I mean, this is a thick book. But you know what? He hasn't told us all. There are names we don't yet know. There's more of the character of Christ yet to be revealed, which means that revelation will continue right on into eternity because the infinite one is never exhausted. I don't know about you, but I find that thought exhilarating. I mean, we cannot know all there is to know about Jesus. He's too great. He's too glorious. He is the unfathomable God. Nitty-gritty, practical. That means there will be things now that we don't fully understand. Things we, we cannot fully comprehend. All of our why questions will not be answered. And that can drive us crazy. We want to know. In fact, we are are constantly convincing ourselves that we do know. Right? I mean, it's hard to be humble in the age of opinion bubbles. I mean, give people a blog post on any topic in an opinion bubble, and by gum, they know. But there are aspects to Jesus that are mysterious. And that's humbling. It's humbling to not always know and to just trust the one who is faithful and true. I mean, even as I was preparing this message, I asked, why, Lord? Why the long battle of Helm's Deep? When the white rider could come in an instant and claim victory. But here's what I know even as I ask. When the archives are open in eternity and I see what's been written there since before the universe existed, I'll say, oh, that's what was going on. That's what God was up to. That's the aspect of his character that I didn't fully comprehend. We must let Jesus be Jesus even when Jesus is mysterious. Here's another takeaway. 
Let's let Jesus vindicate. Christians ought to be the least violent people on the planet. We don't, we don't need to fight for vindication now. We don't need to take vengeance. I mean, he, he, here's what nullifies that violence in our hearts, right? The, the violence of anger at others that Jesus equates to murder, Matthew 5, 22. If a Christian sins against you, hurts you, offends you, and listen, I am, I am not, believe me, I'm not making light of, of the pain sin causes, especially the pain that comes from other Christians, nor am I saying that sin doesn't need to be dealt with, but when a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, me, and they will, and they have, we can look back to the violence of the cross and know that Jesus suffered that violence for that sin. He took it personal, so we don't have to. And if we suffer in whatever way, persecution, hostility, sin, again, not saying that we don't fight injustice, not saying we don't defend the weak, but if we suffer at the hands of unbelievers, we can look forward to the violence of Christ's judgment, which is just and true, and be freed from the violence in our hearts, knowing Christ will take care of it. This is what frees us to love everyone, even our enemies. This is what will cause us to stand ready to forgive and to extend that forgiveness when it's asked for. This is what will protect us from the root of bitterness if the sin against us is never acknowledged. Jesus sees. Jesus vindicates. Evil and justice will not go on indefinitely. The combination of sovereign power and perfect righteousness will really defeat evil once and for all. And so we're free to obey Romans 12, 19. Right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus will destroy the dragon and he will have his bride happily forever. Right? Isaiah 63, 4 again, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. The day of God's vengeance is the year of his redemption. Now, we considered a, a gruesome supper, right? But there's another supper in Revelation 19. Here it is, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right. All of God's sovereign power is directing history... All of his sovereign power is directing the story to this end. Slay the dragon, get the bride, feast forever. 
Now, you, you probably know this, but let me remind you of the, the Hebrew wedding custom because it'll, it'll help us see the reality behind this image. After a match was agreed on by the parents, there was a betrothal. And you know, because of Mary and Joseph, that, that betrothal was um, much stronger, much more binding than our engagements. The terms of marriage were agreed upon. There were witnesses. God's blessing was pronounced on the union. And from that day, the couple was legally considered husband and wife. But they didn't live together. Not yet. No marital intimacy. For a period of time, the groom would go off. He'd prepare a place for his wife. And when the time had ended, with everything prepared, he would put on his best clothes. He would gather his friends. And he would have a processional with singing and dancing and rejoicing. And he would go to the bride's house and she would be ready, adorned and arrayed in her best attire. And the groom would receive his bride and bring her to their new home for a week-long feast. Now think about it. That wedding custom is a parable of all redemptive history. In eternity past... The father chose a specific bride for his son. During the Old Testament, the coming wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God takes on flesh and he pays the dowry for his bride. This is called the marriage supper of the lamb because he is the sacrificial lamb who turns prostitutes into brides. And the price was his life for his bride's sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved so that we could one day enjoy the wedding wine. And, and, and when you first believed, Christian, banked all your hope and all your trust in Christ, you were betrothed. And the Holy Spirit was given to you as a sign of that marriage agreement, the engagement ring. And now we wait. And we don't worry and wonder if he's going to come. We wait and we worship and we get ready because we know that one day he will come. The processional will take place. He will get up off his throne in heaven. He will gather every angel and saint in heaven. And he will come home for his bride. And he will lead us to the Father's house where there will be a party like there never has been before. And this is what makes the party so great. Christ will give himself to us completely forever. What's his will be ours. Right? That's what happens in a marriage. The, the complete unveiling of what this means doesn't come until Revelation 21. But here, with this wedding image, the focus is on intimacy and trust and oneness and commitment and delight. You, you see, whether you're in a good marriage right now, whether you're in a rough marriage today, whether you're in no marriage today, there is only one spouse who can satisfy you completely and forever. There's only one who can make you eternally happy. I mean, Jesus told us when he was on the earth that there will be no marriage between humans in heaven. You know why? Because intimacy with Christ is better than the best marital intimacy on earth. Psalm 1611 is the description. In your presence, there is, don't read too quickly past this phrase, fullness 
of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forever. Think of that. Fullness of joy. Utter bliss. Heavenly ecstasy with no sin to get in the way of our enjoyment. And the experience of the deepest, purest, most profound love imaginable. I mean, we, we, we cannot imagine what it's going to be like. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says so. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know why we can't imagine it? Because there's never been a wealthier father prepare a wedding feast. There, there's never been a groom who has sacrificed as much for his bride. There's never been a, a groom who treated his bride so well. There, there, there's never been a more wonderful home prepared. No bride has ever needed her husband more, and no bridegroom has ever loved his bride more. There has never been a wedding like this. All weddings point to this wedding. And everything we desire in a spouse, Jesus is. He's honorable. He's faithful. He's committed. He's great and powerful. He's rich. And he's generous. He's wise. He's beautiful. He's completely delightful, which is why there are pleasures in his presence forever. Now, Michael Reeves said it, if you were in his session, and it was already here in my uh, notes, so God wants you guys to get this. Don't let this make you feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, the ladies have to deal with being called sons all the time. So don't, don't be uncomfortable about being called the bride. This imagery is intimate. Work hard to see the reality behind the image and rejoice and exult and give glory to God, the gospel. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his reign, his promise to return for his bride, that, that's the invitation to this wedding feast. And you RSVP to the marriage supper of the Lamb by believing. That's all. And if you've already RSVP'd, well, you will ride triumphantly with the bridegroom. You will feast on and you will enjoy the presence of our glorious Christ forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, will you please do what, what, what I cannot do, what we cannot do on our own, and you just drive this word home, drive these truths home so that they shape us, so that they uh, affect us, so that they change us. Let it, let it bear fruit in our lives. Empower us to wait and to worship now with faith as we look to the dawn and the coming of our white rider, our dragon slayer, our bridegroom. And let what we know is coming in the future define and direct our present. Do it for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.